Welcome to Nesta's Future Curious podcast with me, Nigel Campbell. We'll be stimulating the parts other podcasts can't reach with ideas, provocations and glimpses into our shared future. Well, the big news is that we have a major global battle on our hands against antibiotic resistance. Uh, Increasingly, antibiotics are failing us. Uh, Why? Well, that's because they've been overused over countless generations. So now we need a new way of dealing with resistant bacteria. It's a global battle and we think we might have the solution. But first, let me introduce you to my guests today. Uh, Dr. Tina Joshi is a lecturer in molecular biology from the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Plymouth and is an expert in antimicrobial resistance. Hello, Tina. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, are you right? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. And also joining us is Caroline Perslow from Nesta, who is part of the team which is leading a global innovation challenge called the Longitude Prize uh, to find winning new ideas to help crack the problem of resistance to antibiotics through better diagnostic tests. Welcome, Caroline. Hi. Hi there. So I'd like to start by getting a sense of what, I suppose, resistance to antibiotics actually means and, and, and why that's a growing problem. Tina, can you explain briefly how antibiotics actually work and and indeed how they fail? Certainly. So antibiotics work by affecting the bacterial cells. So these are cells that are particular to bacteria and we humans don't have these. So for example, um, human cells don't have cell walls, but bacterial cells do. And our most common antibiotic, penicillin, works by keeping the bacteria from building the cell wall. So in effect, our antibiotics either stop bacteria from reproducing or actually destroy them. The way in which they don't work is, or they stop working, is when the um, bacterium itself will actually be resistant to the actual activity of the antibiotic, and then the antibiotic will not work anymore. Right, and and, and so uh, and I guess there's a lot of talk about overuse and overprescribing of antibiotics, causing this these resistant strains to emerge, as you explained there, Tina. Um, Caroline, what, what's happening on the ground which is causing this problem? It's a good question. So as Tina explained, um, antibiotics, are, sorry, bacteria become resistant to antibiotics. Um, it happens naturally in the environment. But what we're doing is putting more pressure on the bacteria to mutate quicker. And that means we're speeding up resistance effectively. Um, so when we overprescribe antibiotics, um, either in the human or in the um, animal sectors, we're effectively causing the bacteria to mutate more quickly and we're creating ourselves this problem of antibiotic resistance. So w- once a, a single bacterium happens to develop some resistance to um, one of these antibiotics and then it, it re- reproduces at a great rate, then how does then that get from the person in which that is happening to to someone else? Sure. So, I mean, by, by infection, effectively. Um, so once one human has um, developed this resistant bacteria within their body and they can transfer um, that bacteria in a, in a variety of ways, just depending on, on how the infection spreads. So it could be... Um, by cough if it's a respiratory tract infection, for example, and then it means that that resistant bacteria is then spread to the next person 
and so on and so forth. So, so the effectiveness of the antibiotic is not dependent on the person, it's dependent on the bacteria. So that, that resistance then transfers to someone else. That's exactly right. So humans are not resistant um, to these antibiotics. It's the bacterial infection that you have that's resistant. So Tina, I mean, antibiotics have been around and indeed effective for, for, for generations. So, so what's causing these drugs to become less effective right now? There are several reasons, really, and and the primary reason, really, is for the over-prescription of antibiotics. So what's happening, really, is we've overused the antibiotics we've had in our previous arsenal, and um, we haven't actually appropriated antibiotic use. So one of the reasons for that is um, over-prescribing by GPs, dentists, um, over-prescribing in intensive farming practices, for example, so veterinary prescriptions. Other reasons perhaps could be because of poor hygiene practice in hospitals. So, for example, a lack of hand washing, a lack of um, sanitisation in certain areas, as well as the fact that we don't actually, we don't seem to have kept up with development of new diagnostics within the area of antibiotic resistance. We've kept up with regards to diabetes. I mean, we've got new um, diagnostic methods for those. MRI scans, for example. But for some reason in bacteriology, we have still resorted to using traditional methods of growing bacteria on Petri dishes. And that's something that needs to change. So rapid diagnosis of infections is key here. Right. I mean, I was going to say, why can't we just keep developing new drugs as as other areas of medicine uh, seem very good at? What, what, why are the options running out for us now? I think we had a, a golden era antibiotics from the 1940s all the way through to the 1980s, where we had a pipeline of antibiotic development. And we did use our antibiotics ubiquitously um, throughout very varying environments. And we've seemed to have exhausted those particular resources and ways of developing antibiotics. The current pipeline is stalled. Really, it takes about 10 years for a new antibiotic to um, be used and trialled and put onto the market. And we're struggling to identify new ones now because of exhausting our previous resources. That's fascinating because so in a way, it's a combination of a, a, a behavioural problem, an economic uh, and investment problem, as well as a pharmaceutical and biological problem. That's, that's, that's quite a, a complex thing we're talking about here. Certainly, it's, it's involving pretty much every factor you could think of. It's a one health problem. It's, it's involving several health problems. Socioeconomic issues are involved as well. Policy. Policy is critical here. Um, ensuring that we implement antibiotic use appropriately is, is critical. Um, but really, I think what, we, what problem we've got is that companies aren't really investing in antibiotic research and the reality is, is that antibiotics are a short term um, solution to a problem. They're not chronic um, solution, for, excuse me, a, a solution for a chronic problem per se. For example, like medicines for diabetes are a long term use and medicines for arthritis long term use. But medicines for antibiotics will last three to 10 days. And that's not enough in terms of profit for a company to invest in developing a new antibiotic and getting it onto the market. Wow. And and uh, so we are talking about these um, 
uh, nihilistic uh, scenarios of, of widespread uh, problems with uh, resistance and, and inability to, to fight infections. Um, is, is that something which uh, really is, is worrying you at the moment? In all honesty, yes. I, I wonder as to why there's such a lack of interest in this area. There seems to be little snippets here and there in the media and of the public being aware of the crisis that's about to, to loom and hit us. And um, as a microbiologist, I, I do see that we're going to be in a, in a lot of trouble in, in several years' time because antibiotics underpins all of modern medicine. And if we don't have antibiotics to be able to treat infections, then how are patients going to be treated for other ailments? It's almost a, it's, it's a calamity that's just waiting to happen. And I, I do worry. I really do. And it's the future of, of well, I suppose everyone at stake here. Um, and I'm not sure why policymakers have shown a lack of interest in this also. Well, um, hopefully we will be coming up with some answers. So if you're listening right now, it's not all doom and gloom. Hopefully there might be uh, some uh, answers on the horizon. But before that, um, Mary Millard is someone who knows exactly what antibiotic resistance actually feels like. Mary lives in the United States and her story shows just how a resistant infection can happen anywhere to anyone. And she told us how it all came about. Yes, in fall of uh, 2014, I was admitted to the hospital after a CT scan uh, for a 6.3 centimeter aneurysm and a partially collapsed aortic valve. Um, Before the surgery, I actually went into cardiac arrest because the backwash from the uh, valve had uh, caused a clot. And uh, I coded and was placed on ECMO, which is a set of machinery that circulates your blood for you and oxygenates it for you and put on an external pacemaker. Um, I had the open heart surgery two weeks later as the surgeons thought that uh, the aneurysm was burst. Uh, The surgery went well. And I was put into step down to get ready to go home. And uh, five days later, My husband came in to find me speaking in a confused manner and could not hold my head up and had a fever, and uh, they called a stroke code uh, because stroke is quite common after open-heart surgery, but this delayed the sepsis diagnosis by seven hours. Uh, By then, I was in acute septic shock and sent back into the um, ICU. I had my sternum open for a second time uh, for what they call chest and cavity debridement. Uh, This is where they remove the infection uh, from the chest area and uh, around the aortic graft. And then I had uh, what's called an omental flap, which is where they take part of your stomach and uh, put it in to replace some of the tissue they removed. Uh, The infection resulted in an extra five weeks in the hospital. I was in for a total of 63 days. Uh, When I came home, I was on IV antibiotics for another month, and I had to learn to walk again due to two months in bed and weakened muscles from the acute septic shock. And I did go back to Remick again six months later as it overrode a a lower dose of Cipro, and I was then put on the 1,500 milligrams a day. Uh, Cipro, you know, is a fluoroquinolone and causes a lot of problems. It's very toxic, and I had joint pain, uh, tendon rupture, lost cognition, uh, what I call blackouts. Uh, photosensitivity, reduced kidney function, and other infections. In the past four years, I've had 98 x-rays, 30 CT scans, 
27 ER visits and nine rehospitalizations, um, all due to subsequent infections from the antibiotics or the infection itself acting up. And I've also had to endure, endure um, out-of-pocket costs, such as fuel expenses, clinic co-pays. We don't have a national health system here. Probiotics that I have to purchase um, just to keep your gut microbiome healthy. I can no longer do things I used to do. I used to play volleyball, other sports. I used to ride horseback, uh, take long walks with my dog, and hike in the mountains. And my life has become doctor visits, hospitalizations, and revolves completely around my care. Uh, the effects of septic shock and the antibiotics have caused a lot of disruption in my life. I now have heart failure, which required a pacemaker insertion, tendon rupture, where I have to wear leg braces and ankle braces due to the Achilles tendon being damaged. I also have ciprophotosensitivity, which opens your skin up to skin cancers, which I've had several of, and postsepsis syndrome, which is neuropathy and fatigue. I have a numb left foot and my fingers tingle and a little bit of weakness. We're not sure what the future holds. Right now, uh, I am enduring the Cipro, but they're looking to take me off of it and possibly put in a port to get IV antibiotics. Um, there's also talk about bacteriophage therapy uh, eventually in the future, with an, which is an up-and-coming um, thing to have right now. So we're, my care is reactionary. It's day-to-day. Um, I was told that there are very few graft infection survivors, and they don't really have any protocol for me. So that's kind of nerve-wracking in itself. First off, uh, when this first happened, you know, there's survivors groups out there. Um, I joined a sepsis survivors group, and I looked terribly for a pseudomonas survivors group. There's one for MRSA. There's one for staff. Uh, but there really isn't. Uh, Pseudomonas is very popular. Um, I shouldn't say popular as it is a bad pathogen, but it happens a lot to people with cystic fibrosis as they get lung treatments. But it does not happen in a surgical setting. Uh, this is what I was told uh, by the Infectious Diseases Society of America. They said they only knew of one other person that this happened to about 20 years ago. So there is no support group. I sometimes feel my family doesn't really understand. Uh, I have things that I can remember to this day, these vivid dreams I had from being in a medically induced coma. I don't remember all of three days in the hospital. Um, what I got was told to me by my husband, doctors, PAs, or my medical records, which uh, I have a chart that's 243,000 pages long. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a terrible feeling, and it's scary and frightening not knowing what's going to happen because it comes up at a moment's notice, something happens, and I have to go to the hospital. So it is a very lonely thing. Well, that was Mary Millard talking to us uh, earlier from the U.S., uh, and quite a, a sobering story. Um, <laughs> listening to that, it, it, it really does uh, really pull you up short. Tina, I mean, that was quite sobering, as I say, as we heard there from, from Mary, um, that the huge amount of follow-on problems that are, are sparked by uh, resistance to bacteria, could, I guess, could put a huge strain not on just on individuals, but also on, on the healthcare system in itself. I would think so. I mean, this is obviously, as we've spoken about before, antibiotic treatment is, is short-term. 
However, the, the long term effects, as, as you've heard, are, are really serious. I'm quite overwhelmed at what what um, she's had to suffer, to be honest. It's, it's quite it's quite overwhelming. Um, the, the lack of understanding of the issue and the fact that, to be honest, um, you know, having an antibiotic resistant infection will actually affect so many different organs in the body and requires such long-term healthcare treatment that it, it is something that will burden the healthcare system in the future. If we have more resistant infections um, and resistant cases, but yeah, I'm actually quite quite shocked at um, what, what she's had to suffer, to be honest. So Caroline, I mean, Mary's story there really does bring it home that antibiotic resistance is, isn't just a problem in less developed healthcare systems or, or where you get uh, antibiotics over the, over the counter. How widespread is this becoming? Antibiotic resistance is now global. I don't think there's any countries in the world that are not reporting some form of antibiotic resistance. Um, I think Mary's case in particular highlights um, exactly what you were saying, that it's not just the developing world that are suffering where you can have antibiotics over the counter. This is something we're experiencing um, in the NHS, in the US, in other more developed countries. And the antibiotic resistance problem is multitude. Uh, So there's a multitude of problems there. So it's not just um, that you get this antibiotic resistant infection it's then that you need to have multiple types of antibiotic to help treat it and as Mary's case shows these are toxic drugs and these are then causing further side effects so you have this um, roll on of, of side effects and complications and really we need to try and nip it in the bud so that antibiotic resistance is not a problem right at the get go rather than having these poor patients suffering so many complications. Yeah, I agree there. I think really there's a preconception that antibiotic resistance hasn't hit the developed world. It is a problem in low to middle income countries, which is not true. It is hitting the developed world. And it is true that we are giving patients cocktails of antibiotics now to be able to try and tackle these types of infections. I mean, a prime example was this year when we had a gonorrhea infection in the UK that was resistant to the majority of antibiotics and um, it was dubbed super gonorrhea. And um, the patient involved in question had been given a multitude of antibiotics and evidently had severe side effects. But um, I think that hasn't seem to it doesn't seem to resonate that um that we do have these issues coming to the developed world i mean these types of infections are also hitting australia and, and america too so yeah i do agree that um really we need to consider how these patients are being treated and applying them with several cocktails of antibiotics while that's appropriate to treat the infection it will have long-term side effects for the patient one of the interesting points um about antibiotic resistance is that a lot of people don't identify some of the um, infections as antibiotic resistant infections. Um, So for example, if someone has a lengthier stay in hospital because of an infection, there's not really that connection made. Well, actually, a lot of the time, these are antibiotic resistant infections. And actually, the longer stay is because they're taking several more rounds of antibiotics. To treat them. So it's not just these extreme cases like we saw in the gonorrhea case that Tina mentioned. It's actually happening to a lot more people than we think. 
Now, I mentioned uh, the Longitude Prize. Um, so that there is there is some help, uh, some hope on the on the horizon. The, the Longitude Prize is is targeting diagnostics uh, as a way of to to try and crack this problem. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit more about that? What, why is it di- diagnostics, for example, and 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 how that's been uh, uh, decided upon? Sure. So the Longitude Prize has um, a long history. Uh, the original prize was run 300 years ago. Um, and the idea of the Longitude Prize is to try and stimulate innovation by looking outside of the regular streams of research, for example. Um, so this uh, Longitude Prize is focused on antibiotic resistance, as you know, and it was a publicly decided vote back in 2013. Um, the public voted that antibiotics and antibiotic resistance was one of the greatest problems of our time, and that's where they wanted the new Longitude Prize to focus. So it was decided by our panel of experts at, at Nesta, and um, we brought in a lot of antibiotic resistance specialists as well, um, that we would focus on diagnostic tests. So the prize really aims to... Um, well, so the prize aims to uh, target new diagnostic tests. So these are tests where, for example, you would go to your GP practice. Um, it's unclear. You've got, for example, a sore throat. It's unclear if it's a viral infection or it's a bacterial infection. And this would be a point of care, um, quick acting, uh, cheap and affordable test um, that would quickly tell you if you had a bacteria or not and can advise your prescriber on whether you needed antibiotics. Another example, for example, um, in Mary's case, uh, she had sepsis and we're looking at some diagnostics that will be able to tell us if the patient has sepsis quickly, because of course, if you do have sepsis, you need to be prescribed antibiotics within the hour. Um, And it will be able to tell you the type of bacteria that's causing that sepsis and how to treat what antibiotic to use. So we have 78 teams at the moment competing worldwide. Uh, Tina's team at the University of Plymouth is one of those. Um, And the Longitude Prize um, will award one of those teams £8 million. It's, it's, I suppose, going to take many people by surprise to know that the actual process of prescribing an antibiotic um, is pretty much guesswork. That, you know, when you present with some symptoms to your doctor or you tell your pharmacist, perhaps you don't have a a primary health care system wherever you might be in the world. um, It's a bit of sort of try it and then try it again if that doesn't doesn't work. Is that the case, Tina? It is the case. Um, The majority of prescriptions that are delivered to patients are are actually prescribed via empiric methods. So it is pretty much guesswork in some ways it's it's identifying the symptoms and trying the most appropriate antibiotic the clinician thinks will work now if that doesn't work the patient would have had those antibiotics gone back to their prescriber who will then give them another set of antibiotics and it it seems to go backwards and forwards until an antibiotic actually works for that particular infection so i'm sure you can see the relevance of having a diagnostic that could actually help clinicians, for example, or prescribers or healthcare assistants to prescribe appropriate antibiotics to alleviate and and prevent this process of empirical diagnosis, which actually does contribute to the issue of antibiotic resistance. So what are the the, the technical challenges that we're facing here, what what your team are facing and others around the world, Tina, in terms of that, that diagnostic test you know they seem to be right across medicine diagnostic tests and they seem to have been developed really really well so 
what are the, the, the challenges that you're facing in your team? I think really with diagnostic tests, the majority are built for a laboratory in the hospital and they usually require specialist personnel to perform the tests. One of the biggest challenges for teams like my team is to develop a test that can be used by anyone in not only in the developed world, but in low to middle income countries where they have no access to healthcare and specialist personnel. And to be able to develop a diagnostic that can do that really, really quickly, sensitively and cheaply is really the main main uh, stumbling blocks at these particular points in development of diagnostic. So uh, what, what progress is being being made um, across the world in, in, in this, Caroline? Are you hearing that teams are, are getting close to uh, an answer? Yes, absolutely. So as I said, we have these 78 teams uh, competing in 14 countries. Uh, we recently extended the deadline, the final deadline for the Longitude Prize. Um, the prize previously was five years um, and now it will be uh, six to seven years um, and possibly longer, but we think not. Um, and that's really because we understand that our teams are getting close to the eight criteria they must fulfil to win the prize, but they're not quite there yet. Five to seven years is the typical development time of a diagnostic test. So I think it's correct that the Longitude Prize should reflect that. And yeah, we absolutely are seeing great technologies coming through that can solve the Longitude Prize. I mean, I, I guess that's a, a big challenge. The big, there's a big gulf there, isn't there, between uh, something that in theory works uh, in the lab or on the bench, but one that then can be scaled, that can be used uh, on street corners and 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 in and doctor surgeries and and anywhere in the world. How is you going to go around that 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 problem of scaling uh, a, a solution? That that seems to me to be one of the the biggest hurdles. Yes, you're absolutely right, and it is. And what we're effectively doing and what Tina's team and the other competitors are doing are creating products that um, don't have a traditional market. Like Tina said, most diagnostics are lab-based, and that's how hospitals, GP practices are used to um, purchasing them, and that's the current system they run on. So what we're doing is creating these disruptive technologies that effectively change clinical practice. Or for example, if they're available in the pharmacy or even for use at home, this is really changing the paradigm of, of diagnostic testing. So it's a big challenge, but we have um, partners we're working with at Nesta. The Longitude Prize is well known in the antibiotic resistance community and worldwide. Um, it's supported by the UK government and we're hopeful that a winner, when it does come through, um, will be able to get into the NHS, will be able to reach um, lower and middle income countries. And really, we will push as hard as we can to get this test onto the marketplace. It sounds very exciting uh, and a, a whole new branch of medicine in lots of ways and lots of sort of home medicine as, as well as uh, uh, medicine delivered through healthcare professionals. Uh, Tina, I mean, can you foresee a world in, in the uh, foreseeable future where that may really take root in the way that we approach uh, bacterial infections could, could totally change? I think so. The Longitude Prize is so exciting for, for scientists in the area who are trying to develop new technologies that aren't exactly um, implemented widely and uh, are unusual. They are disruptive technologies. And uh, to be frank, I mean, I think that the fact that the Longitude Prize is supporting so many teams in doing novel research in this area will only enhance and develop new ways of 
diagnosing infections that can be implemented from the ground upwards. So, like you said, perhaps in a street, at a home, um, in a in a pharmacy, for example, in a dentist surgery. Um, and if we can do that, then we are going to be able to change the way in which we use antibiotics, change the way in which we prescribe, change the way in which we consider and actually utilise these resources that really are rare. They're becoming rarer and rarer. So in terms of development, in terms of the way in which the future will change, it's quite exciting because this will not only be fantastic for bacteriology, but will hopefully have wide-reaching effects for the rest of diagnostic technologies across medicine, especially if new technologies are implemented and used. Wow. So, um, Nesta podcast exclusive. How close are you, Tina? <laughs> I think about two, two to three years away. Wow. But it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And that's why it is called the Longitude Price Challenge. It's a challenge for all of us to try and implement and get these technologies off the ground. But it's wonderful that we're getting supported. Wow. Maybe a Nobel Prize is winging its way to you already, Tina. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, but hey. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Future Curious. If you liked what you heard, please do share the podcast and rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us grow our audience. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or visit nesta.org.uk forward slash futurecurious to find out more and check out the other episodes in the series. Thank you and stay curious. Future Curious is a Chalk and Blade production. The producers were Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter, and Lily Ames. Original music is by Jed Flood. <laughs>